Father, you are a speaking God, and we need to be a listening people. Help us by your Spirit that we might be those who learn of your Word today, and then who live our lives according to your kingdom for your glory. We are very weak. We pray for your strength. We're very sinful, and we pray for your forgiveness. And we ask it all for Jesus' namesake. Amen. Have you ever seen the 1987 movie Good Morning Vietnam? It follows an army radio disc jockey. His name is Adrian Croner. It's played by uh, Robbie Williams as he seeks to entertain the troops against the backdrop of war. He tries to lift their spirits. And so he plays Louis Armstrong's great classic, What a Wonderful World. And as the troops listen, the camera pans across the scene. The song goes like this, I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blossom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright, blessed day and the dark, sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also the faces on people going by. I see friends shaking hands, and I say, how do you do? And they're really saying, I love you. There are babies crying. I watch them grow. They learn much before I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. What a wonderful world. But the thing is, as the music plays, the camera pans around to what is happening in Vietnam. There are children playing in the river laughing with villagers and the raw beauty of Vietnam. But then the Marines move in with the helicopter as the napalm bomb goes off. As houses are engulfed in fire with villages raised to the ground. As babies lie dead and children are crying as elderly people lie covered in shrapnel and blood and the soundtrack, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Of course, this last week we could easily replace Vietnam for the Ukraine. The same scenes of terror raining down on the border towns and Kiev as it's encircled, because this is our world. And if we're honest, we're caught in something of a cognitive dissonance between the world that we long for and the world that we know. An aggressor's invasion, the cancer diagnosis, broken relationships, the terror attack, and it jars. The leading figure of the European Enlightenment was Voltaire, an unbeliever. He's the founding father of progressive thought, and he believed that human progress was possible that humanity could build a kingdom of man on earth, a place of peace and security with the state as guarantor. So as we improve education and with visionary political leadership and top-level medical care and social provision, we can build a perfect world. And I saw a bumper sticker this week that spoke of that. It was in rainbow letters peace, it says, we can achieve it. But can we? 
Because Mark's point this morning as we continue our sermon series from the Gospel of Mark is that only Jesus can, but that his mission on earth is to. Because Jesus, God's King, Messiah, has arrived. He's burst onto the stage of human history with that dramatic announcement we saw a couple of weeks ago, the kingdom of God is at hand. This was what the Jews were waiting for for centuries. This was the great hope they were longing and aching for as an occupied nation. The kingdom of God is at hand. A new age has dawned. Are you ready for it? A new paradise creation is around the corner. Are you in it? And this morning what Mark is going to do is to show us this amazing new world that Jesus has come to achieve from two powerful, mouth-watering, arresting angles. And we're going to see that everything we long for, Jesus has come to bring. Here's the first. Perfect intimacy because, you see, God the groom is here to marry his people. In verse 18, we're in the thick of it, uh, in a series now of conflict incidents as the establishment clergy of Jesus' day express their outrage at the way that he is breaking ecclesiastical law. Verse 18, why do your disciples not fast? In the first century, pious Jews fasted much like Muslims do at Ramadan. It was a sign of devotion to God. But in the Old Testament law codes, Fasting was only mandated on one day a year at Yom Kippur, the annual day of atonement, in contrition at the nation's sin. So count number one on the indictment in court is this. Why don't your disciples fast? And what Jesus' defense team could now argue in court would be this. Your Honor... The question is why his disciples don't fast, but it's not the annual day of atonement. It's not Yom Kippur. Fasting is not mandated in the law today. And had that defense been mounted, the case would be thrown out of court. But Jesus decides not to answer like that, but instead decides to answer in the most provocative way possible. He argues that you cannot fast when the bridegroom, verse 19, is here. And had we been there, you wouldn't have heard a pin drop. The atmosphere would have been electrically charged. There would have been a stunned silence as all eyes, like daggers, would have looked at him. Jesus says, you can't fast when the bridegroom, verse 19, is here. So long as they have the bridegroom, they can't fast. But that title, bridegroom, was the very title that God, that God used of himself throughout the Old Testament story. In Isaiah 54 verse 5, God says, your maker is your husband, speaking to the nation of Israel. The bridegroom is here, says Jesus. It's another way of saying God is here, which is another way of saying that the dawn of the new age is here, that the end of history is here, that the kingdom of God 
has arrived because what God promised he would do as the groom was to marry his people and then take them home to perfected glory. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, God declares this, that you will call me, speaking to the nation, my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, because I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they will be remembered no more, and I will make them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and you will lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast mercy and love. God is the husband, the nation is the bride, but it was hardly a fairy tale romance, more, I suppose, a horror show. As this nation that had been pledged to God for marriage effectively turned from this great God of love, engaging in a long string of illicit affairs, flirting with other lovers, getting into bed with other gods, turning from the tender love of God her maker into the cruel and abusive arms of the Baals, the foreign gods who so cruelly abused her. And so God in mercy and judgment handed, God, uh, handed them over to the nations and in scandal and disgrace allowed the enemy nation to come in, rather like in the Ukraine, to invade, to take over, to terrorize as a sign of judgment that the nation should turn back to him. But the great hope of the nation was that in her disgrace, God would one day come, that the groom would arrive, that this marriage would be consummated, and that they would all live happily ever after. But before we move on from it, I do need you to see what Jesus is claiming here, especially if you're here listening online or in the building. The claim could not be more explosive who is this Jesus? He says he is the groom, which is code for God. Come down. Jesus then is not just a towering figure worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize, a founder of a religion like the Dalai Lama, a great guru of ethical morality uh, like a Gandhi. He's not an ethical reformer or a social teacher. What Jesus is saying to you this morning is that he is your God. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I am deliberately trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing about Jesus, which so many people do say, which is that I am willing to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. A man who merely is a man and said the sort of things that Jesus says would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level as a man who claims that he is a poached egg, or else he is the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, or spit at him, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with the patronizing nonsense 
about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he didn't intend to. The groom, God, is here. And so in verse 19, where are we but at a wedding? And like any wedding, it's a happy day, a new union, a new family, a new future. Wow, the bridal dress, the flower arrangements, the organ toccata, the choral piece, the cutting of the cake, the speeches, champagne, the reception, dancing, toasts, the honeymoon in Bermuda. But imagine if you went to the wedding and you arrived, and then you saw the uh, bridesmaids. And they were all in a sort of jet black dress. Imagine if you met the mother of the bride and the father of the bride, and they had faces like funerals. And then you met the groomsmen, and they were in black, heads down, weeping. You'd say, sorry, have I got the wrong church? I, I thought there was a wedding here. Is this a funeral? You'd think this is really strange. Imagine if we went out to the reception, and as the duck à l'orange was served and the champagne, nobody took it, and they said, sorry, not for me, thanks. I can't drink or eat. We're fasting, heads bowed, faces like a funeral. You'd say, what's wrong with these people? I mean, what, what's wrong with them? This is a happy day. This is a wedding day. Why are they walking around as if it's a funeral? Inappropriate, incongruous. Imagine the photograph, everybody in, in black with faces like funerals. No, Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? It's a no-brainer. As long as they have the bridegroom, they cannot fast. Of course not. You see, there's a time to fast and be sad, and there's a time to be happy and rejoice. 1939, as the Nazis invaded Poland, as the SS death squads went around uh, Nazi Germany, and as the camps were established at Belsen and Auschwitz as the trains took millions to their deaths, that's a time to mourn. But as the US 4th Infantry Division swept through Paris in August 1945, liberating France from Nazi tyranny, and as Charles de Gaulle led the procession with praise down the Champs-Élysées, that's not a time to be sad. It's a time to be happy because your liberation has arrived. And what Jesus is saying is that the groom God is here to liberate you from sin and judgment. This isn't a time to fast. We're not in exile now, but being saved. And yet, verse 20, he says, there will be a day to fast when the bridegroom is taken away. On that day fast... The day for fasting is the annual day of atonement, but this groom will be taken away. The voice in the Greek is in the passive, implying that he will be taken away against his will. There will be a day when this groom, God, Jesus, will be taken away, and you need to fast on that day. Why? Because that day will be the ultimate day of atonement. 
As this, our groom God, goes to the cross of Calvary, arrested, tried, executed, stripped, as in degradation and shame, he faces the horror of state execution, even on a Roman gibbet. This, the darkest hour in world history, the most dreadful day in the universe, as the darkness descends on the land, as God's perfect king bears our guilt and shame at the cross, securing our forgiveness decisively, that's the day to mourn. Well, one of the things a pastor always has to do, and it's one of the great joys uh, of any ministry, is to take uh, a wedding service. I'm looking forward to my first one here. I don't know when it will be, so if anybody wants to get engaged, we'll uh, arrange that fairly quickly. Uh, it can be arranged marriages uh, are often the most successful, so we can do that for you. Um, but of course, certainly in the UK, the moment of no return is the signing of the register, as it's called, as the contract, if you like, is, is signed. And in the UK, uh, you have to, uh, by law, sign it in what is called Indian ink, because it's permanent. It's very hard to get it out. But as God the groom comes to marry his bride people, sinners like us, the marriage contract is not signed in Indian ink, but in his own blood. It's as if it's signed in his own death. And it's as if uh, it is a wedding service, as the question is asked of the Savior, Savior, will you take this sinner to love and to have for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And the Savior Jesus says, I will. That's the promise of the gospel of grace. And this great picture of a God of love, this, this groom God longing to come and to save us, strikes chords deep in our hearts, doesn't it? Marilyn Monroe was a major sex symbol, one of the most popular Hollywood stars of the 50s and 60s, grossing $20 million by the time of her death. She married first at the age of 15. She divorced three times. A string of high-profile affairs, JFK, Teddy Roosevelt, Sinatra, Marlon Brando, Mitchum. She suffered mental illness and substance abuse for a number of years and then died in 1962 at the age of 36 from a drug overdose, but her whole life was a quest for love from a meaningful other. And just before she died, she said this, it's haunting actually. I'm trying to find myself as a person. Sometimes that's not easy to do. Millions of people live their entire lives without finding themselves. It is something I must do and had I been there at her deathbed, I would have said, you'll find it, not in the illicit affairs, this relationship, all that, horizontally speaking. You're going to find it vertically in God, your creator, in Jesus, your savior, in the groom God who has come to save you because of his love. And what Jesus says to us is this thing, this, is so big, it is so massive, if it's off the Richter scale big, 
No civil servant in D.C. Can, can put this thing that Jesus has come to do in a column. Or over in Silicon Valley, they can't put it on a website so that we'll understand it. And that's the purpose of Jesus in these two many parables, the first uh, in verse 21 and the second in verse 22. Too many parables to say that this, this thing I'm talking about is off the Richter scale big. Verse 21, nobody sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the tear is made worse. So your Levi jeans, you've got a hole in them. You take it to the repair shop, but if you put some unshrunk cloth on the hole, actually in the wash, what will happen is it will tear even more. You can't contain this thing in the old structures. You can't fit Jesus into any human religion. The second picture, I suppose, is borrowed from Napa Valley in verse 22. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. They know that over in Napa Valley. If you put wine still fermenting into old leather goatskins, the gas will burst the skins. There'll be an explosion. You put new wine into new wineskins. Please, don't try and accommodate Jesus into human structures. Don't assume that he is a social reformer to help us a little bit here on earth. Don't assume he's come to just lead a religion like Islam or Judaism. What we're talking about is the beginning of a new universe, the dawn of a new creation, and of a God who is saving a people for a new age. There's our first point. It is that God, the groom, has come to save his people. Here's the second. It is that the Lord is here to restore his Sabbath. By verse 23, the conflict intensifies as these clergy now try to file the charges against Jesus. Now, not only is he not fasting, but second count on the indictment, he's working on the Sabbath. When we hear the word Sabbath, certainly when I was growing up in the UK, I was turned off by it. Uh, for me, Sunday was the most boring day growing up. There was no sport on and nothing interesting to watch uh, on television. The shops were shut as well. But in the Old Testament, Sabbath is thrilling. It's massive. Indeed, you could argue it's the most important idea in the whole of the Bible. It stands for the very meaning of life. The Hebrew word Sabbath really means cessation or rest. But not rest in the sense that I'm going to lie on the sofa and watch the NFL. But rest in the sense that I'm going to enjoy the perfect creation with the perfect creator. Rest in the sense that I am going to find the meaning of life and enter into perfection, a perfect world with a perfect God. God built the universe in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. The seventh day is the most important day. It's the high point of the week, the goal of creation. He blesses it. Seven for perfection. And the day is still open now. And in Genesis 2, the doors, if you like, are flung open in Genesis 2 so that we can get a snapshot into this 
perfection, this rest, this Sabbath. It is a world in which everything is only ever good all of the time. Jean-Paul Sartre once said this, that God does not exist, I cannot deny, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. And Augustine, O God, you create me for yourself, and my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Rest, knowing God's, and enjoying a perfect creation is what we ache for, it is what we are made for, and here is a Jesus who has come to reinstate it. And yet, what we see here is something of the horror of human religion. A man with a withered hand comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm going to heal him on the Sabbath. But actually what happens is that the religious say, no, you can't heal him on the Sabbath. What human religion does, and it's why so many people are turned off, is it takes the blessing of God and turns it into crippling burden. God has come to bless this man, but the religious can't stand it. In the first century, Sabbath was not a time for work, but for rest. And what the lawyers did was to come up with a a kind of legal minefield of rules and regulations, rather like federal COVID laws from D.C. And there were 39 different categories of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, sorting, dissecting, and sifting, and kneading, and cooking, and sewing, and shearing, and laundering, and combing, and dyeing, and spinning, and warping, whatever that is, threading, weaving, trying, untying, tearing, trapping, killing, skinning, curling, smoothing, measuring, cutting, constructing, writing, and demolishing. And the lawyers had a field day working out, well then, is this cooking? Is it, is it cooking that's forbidden or cooking that's allowed? And is it, is it curing that's okay or curing that isn't? They turned the blessing of God, enjoy rest, into a horrible legal minefield of burden. That's human religion. And here is Jesus as he breaks through in chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, As he meets this man with a shriveled hand, come here, he said to them. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent, and he looked around in anger and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. There's a Rembrandt uh, painting called The Night Watch. I don't know if you know it. It was the most ambitious painting of his career painted in 1642, and it's housed in Amsterdam. One of the world's most famous pieces of art, a must-see in the area. In this painting, the painter breaks all the boundaries of light and dark. It's really daring as a composition, and there are officers and guardsmen, and they are in active poses for the first time rather than the traditionally uh, static ones. But a few years ago, a massive restoration effort was launched called Operation Night Watch. It was the most wide-ranging restoration of a piece of art ever. 
It involved digital imaging, artificial intelligence, high-resolution photography, imaging techniques, hyperspectral imaging to determine the condition of the painting. It was scanned millimeter by millimeter using uh, macro X-ray fluorescent scanners, analyzing chemical elements like calcium, iron, and cobalt. And following the distribution of these maps, uh, the chemicals were identified, 56 scans were taken, each took 24 hours, a total of 12,500 photographs were taken at high resolution. And then the treatment plan began to restore this amazing masterpiece to its true and original glory, because that's what you do with a masterpiece. And what Jesus the groom, Jesus the Lord of Sabbath has come to earth to do is to restore the broken masterpiece of humanity, scarred by our sin, under the deforming and defacing effects of the curse. It's where we live, under the horror and terror of death and judgments. This man stands as a picture of humanity, a withered hand, possibly multiple sclerosis. Maybe he's had a stroke. Or maybe he's a leper. And this man would have tried all the quacks. He'd have gone to the medical specialists, exorcisms and incantations. His life is desperate. He can't play baseball with his son. That's the miles bit. But the handicapped couldn't enter the temple. And the handicapped couldn't work in a manual culture. He can't be a carpenter or a fisherman. And in a culture where the man is the breadwinner, th this man can't provide for his family. There is no disability benefits. He can't go to the temple to offer sacrifice. His life is desperate. The rabbis, well, medical help can be administered on the Sabbath day, but only in an emergency if it's a life and death issue. But this isn't a 911. This isn't a, an emergency room, urgent care issue. I mean, the guy's suffered like this for years, if not decades. It could wait until Tuesday morning. But the point is that Jesus wants to make the points. He deliberately heals on the Sabbath because he wants us to see who he is and what he has come to do. The Lord of Sabbath is here to restore humanity he stretched out his hand, and it was restored. And that word restored implies a full freedom and a return to the liberty which we were created to enjoy. This is a snapshot of God's heaven. George Bernard Shaw once spoke for many when he said this, heaven as a place conventionally conceived is a place so inane, dull, useless, miserable, that nobody has ever ventured to describe a whole day in heaven, though plenty of people have described a day at the beach. He couldn't be more wrong. Open up your fitness magazine later today, and it speaks to you of perfect health. In the new creation, you will have perfect health in a physical body. 
And then uh, listen to the marriage counselors and the agony aunts. They'll speak to you of a world of perfect relationships. In the new creation, there will be perfect relationships with everybody. Uh, watch the environmentalists, the Gretas of this world, and they, they'll speak to a world where the, where the creation is in perfect harmony. That's what it will be like. Go to the Pentagon, uh, and they'll talk of the need of, of, of perfect security, and that's what the new creation will be like again. All of the curse of Eden overturned, gone forever. In the new creation, no sickness or sadness or sorrow. No hospitals, because there'll be no sickness. No hearsts or limousines, because there will be no funerals. And as the Apostle John looks towards the end, that's what he sees. Perfect Sabbath restored. But as I finish, it's just worth saying that this section is as disturbing as it is thrilling. Thrilling, because God the groom and God the Lord of Sabbath has come to take us into his new paradise world beyond the grave. But disturbing, because what is the response of humanity in chapter 3, verse 6? They plot to kill him. The word in the original Greek isn't kill, it is annihilate. This king has to be wiped from the face of the earth. And here's why. We don't want to hand him the keys. And we don't want to give him control. And that's the issue, isn't it, for all of us. We'll think more of it next week, so do join us. But let's pray as we sit. Father, thank you that Jesus is Lord of Sabbath, the groom who has come to rescue us. Help us, Father, to be those who rejoice in his rescue and to live according to his rule. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.